Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the example that he set. Lord, we thank you most of all for the sacrifice that he made that only he could make, Lord. But God, we do thank you for the example that he set for us and his life that he lived, the very brief life that he lived in humanity here on earth, Father. Lord, we pray for your spirit to direct us this morning as we look at this account, as we look at the power that is available to us, Father, in the battle that is real, in the war that is among us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every time I listen to that area of Scripture, I don't know, Satan's voice just sends chills through me. And you think, you know, could have they done it differently? I mean, they could have, but my, what effect that has. And how pure evil it does sound. And that's because Satan is pure evil. But praise God, we have a hope. We have the ultimate gift to overcome that evil. In your sermon outline, you see that we have three points this morning again. The first one is the big picture kind of, the war. We're going to talk about the spiritual warfare that we face as we live our lives today. Then we're going to talk about Christ's battle within that war and the example he set in that battle that we have that's accounted in this scripture this morning. And then we're going to talk about our battles, our personal spiritual battles within the greater spiritual war. Well, first of all, we want to talk about that war 
and there's six observations about spiritual warfare, the spiritual war that I want to look at quickly this morning, briefly. The first two are kind of grouped together. The first one is that there is a spiritual world. There is a spiritual realm. And within that spiritual realm, we are involved in a spiritual war. There is spiritual warfare raging all of the time in this world. This thought, this discussion oftentimes scares people because it's not something that's tangible. It's something that can be maybe fantasized, maybe desired in a way, and that scares people. But that doesn't change the fact that it is a reality. And in the scripture that we read, as a call to worship addresses it directly. And we want to re- look at the last verse of that again in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul wrote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't know how you could say that's describing anything less than a battle in the spiritual realm, and that's what it is, and it's real, and it's powerful, and it's destructive. The third thing we want to look at within the spiritual war is the fact that our enemy in this spiritual war is formidable. He is strong. He is powerful to a point, but he is powerful. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I think I've shared this before, but I think it's worth sharing again. My family and I took an opportunity to visit a feline rescue center in, up in Clay County. And these weren't kitty cats that they were rescuing. These are tigers and lions and leopards. And as long as I am able to remember within my mind, I will not forget the sound of that lion's roar when we were there that day. We couldn't see him. We were probably 50 to 100 yards away from him over the hill. And he roared and it made my chest vibrate. It's an eerie, eerie feeling. But he is a mighty animal. And that's why that Satan is compared to that mighty, roaring lion. He is fierce. He does not stop. He will not stop until he destroys us. Jesus calls him a thief. He says that he comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. He says that's why the enemy is here. That's why Satan is among us, to destroy us. The fourth fact we want to look at is is that the outcome of the spiritual war is eternal. It has effects for eternity. Satan wants to make the battles of this life about the temporary when he knows fully that they are eternal. He understands the war that he is raging. He refuses to understand and accept that he is going to lose. 
But he understands that it is eternal. But he tries to deceive us into believing that it is just temporary. It is only the things of this world. He told Eve, you will not surely die. The fifth thing we want to look at is the fact that this spiritual war, the scope of it is universal. It's not limited to the Providence Mennonite Church. It's not limited to Kevin Schwarzentruber. It affects every race, every people group in this world. Satan's not picky who he destroys. No one is exempt. And finally, our involvement in this spiritual war is personal. Satan and his workers are attacking at an individual level. He knows what he's doing. It's a grassroots movement. He's going to destroy the kingdom of, attempt to destroy the kingdom of God from the ground up. If he destroys the individual, he can destroy marriages. If he destroys marriages, he can destroy families. If he destroys families, he can destroy churches. If he destroys churches, he can destroy communities. And if he destroys communities, he can destroy nations. That's his game plan. That's his theory. That's his battle plan in this spiritual war. We want to look at how we can counteract, how we can stand against his deceptions, against his attempts to destroy this morning. That is the war defined very briefly. But it is a very real war. Any war that we study in history, a physical war that we've had in this, in this lifetime, whether it be the First or Second World War or, or any of the numerous wars throughout history, they're made up of battles. A war is not just one battle. It is a collection of different battles in different fields by different groups. First, we want to look at Christ's battle within this war. And that's what our text is referring to this morning. In chapter 4, verse 1, It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That was his purpose of being led up into the wilderness, was to be tempted. There was a reason. So what does it mean by then? It's kind of a chronological stepping stone, isn't it? It means following this. What was this event? What was this leading up into the wilderness? What was it following? If you remember from a few weeks back, we talked about Jesus' baptism. And this event is immediately following Jesus' baptism. And in his baptism, Jesus stepped up. And I guess in in reality, stepped into the water to be baptized, to be identified. And in his obedience, the Spirit of God came upon him after his baptism baptism in that water came down upon him as a dove to identify him as the son of God and then finally in the completion of the trinity in the fulfillment of the testimony of Christ's life God himself spoke this is my son in whom I am well pleased that is the event that our scripture this morning is immediately following We talked about that event in detail a few weeks ago and what a glorious event it was. Ask a question this morning. Could Jesus have sinned? Well, the answer to that question, in a way, is no and yes. 
You see, Jesus is fully man and fully God. In his humanity, Jesus was fully tempted in this account that we read this morning. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it tells us a little more about it. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And it's speaking of Christ. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, yet perfect and righteous, although he has been tempted to the fullest extent. We have no idea what he went through because it doesn't take near that much to bring us to failure. Satan brought it all, yet Jesus stood. Jesus, as I said, is also fully God. Scripture tells us that God cannot be tempted. In James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So why then was Jesus to be tempted? Well, it was the next step in the master plan that is laid out before us in the Bible from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. This was a crucial step in the complete story of salvation. In the the reality, the power of the gospel. Yes, Christ came to this earth. He was persecuted died and was resurrected in victory over sin and death. But as a step in the fulfillment of that gospel message, he had to be tested. In order for Jesus to be the ultimate, perfect, pure, sinless sacrifice, he had to withstand temptation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin. No sin. That means none. Pure. Complete. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By his sacrifice, by his willingness alone, we become the righteousness of God that gives us our ticket that ushers us in to heaven for eternity. His purity, Christ's purity, had to be tested. Not in the chance that he would fail, but to prove that he wouldn't. So how did Satan tempt Christ? Well, he came at him in this account from three basic angles. As you remember, as the text opened, it says Christ fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. That, in our humanity, is physically impossible, except for the supernatural. At the end of that 40 days, our scripture says that he was hungry. Really? You think after 40 days of eating nothing, he was hungry? Absolutely he was hungry. I'm hungry after four hours. But 40 days? Satan... Among all his flaws, he was one thing. He was observant. 
So his first temptation after a 40-day fast was what? Food. He tempted Jesus with food. And in chapter 4, verse 3, if you are, and I'm not going to try to imitate the voice, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Satan's standing back there and saying, okay, God just made this big show. He totally identified you as his son. And if you're really his son, prove it. I mean, the fact that this dove came down and the fact that the voice of God just echoed through the atmosphere, identifying you and claiming you as his son who you are well pleased, that's not good enough for me. Prove it. Do something on your own. Perform a miracle. Make yourself some food, Jesus, if you are, in fact, the Son of God. And in verse 4, Jesus says, It is written. What did he do? He went to Scripture. He went to the Scriptures that Satan knew, that everyone of the time knew. He went directly to them. What a beautiful example and testimony that he set to go to the Scriptures, to the Word of God that has been recorded and handed down to us. Can you imagine life today without the Bible? I think we're starting to realize it, aren't we? Maybe we can. Have you noticed that a lot in today we have people claiming Christianity, but they're setting their own standards? Many of those standards are blatantly contrary to the Scriptures, that God gave us. They're setting their own standards, their own guidelines, and trying to stand on those. They'll say, well, the Bible's not clear on that. They'll say that it's in error. That's a dangerous place to be. No, it's not always easy to interpret the Bible. It's not always easy to understand or to connect the dots or to truly apply it to our lives. It's not always easy. It takes faith. But I would much rather put my faith in a scripture that has been handed down and we can go into detail on just how closely it stands after 2,000 years of our earliest held manuscripts within 95% accuracy of each other. We've talked about that before, but that is important. That is amazing. That is miraculous. I would much rather put my faith in that than man's whims or personal preferences. I have a book on my reading list, and the title of the book, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. Without Scripture to stand on, that's exactly where we would be. Well, Jesus tells him, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is telling Satan, now I just lived 40 days without food. I think my father's got it. He's got this situation. My obedience is much more important than my personal satisfaction in my flesh. That's what Jesus is telling Satan. When my father wants me to eat, he'll let me know. I don't have to listen to you, and I have no desire to listen to you. Well, that didn't work. 
So what does Satan try next? Chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And then Satan learns from his first attempt to tempt Jesus. He uses scripture. And in verse 6, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan's telling him, Jesus, just how important are you to God, to your so called Father? Jesus responds to him with scripture. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. My father says it. He will do it. I don't have to test him. I shouldn't test him. We should trust him. I, Jesus is saying, I trust my father. I should trust my father. And to test him would be saying that I don't trust him. He is God after all. Finally, that test, that temptation, not test, that temptation didn't work. So Satan appeals to what he perceives, what he assumes would be in the nature of Christ to desire and hunger for power. The scripture says that the devil took him to a very high mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Guess what? Jesus has already been anointed, prophesied to be the king of the universe. So why does Satan try to offer this to him? Satan is trying to offering him a way, trying to offer him a way to his kingship without the suffering that is to come. He's trying to give him a shortcut. Verse 10, Jesus responds to him, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan appealed to Jesus in three different ways. First, it was through personal comfort or gratification in his flesh. He told Jesus, just take care of yourself. Why are you waiting on God? You've got the power, supposedly. I know you're hungry. Just make yourself some food and get it over with. Second, he tempted him by challenging him to show off your status. If you really are the Son of God and cherished so much by him, will he really protect you? Is he who you say he is? And finally, Satan tells him, why wait for power? Why wait for possessions, for your kingdom? I'll give it to you right now. All you have to do is worship me. He made it seem simple and enticing. But Jesus never fell for it. That's Jesus' battle. In the example that he set in that battle, 
What do our personal battles look like today? Are we, in fact, tempted today? Yes, we are. In many, many ways. Does God tempt us? Back to James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. We do face trials. In James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, remember it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What does this mean? We are, in fact, tempted by Satan. Just as Jesus was tempted, we are tempted. And we are tested by God. God allows trials to come. Satan tempts us to destroy us, to crush us. And God tests us to strengthen us, to point us toward, to bring us toward maturity in Him. Well, what's the temptation? What's the difference between temptation and trial? A temptation is an opportunity to sin. Trials, like sickness, relationship strains, natural disasters, are unavoidable. We have no choice but to face the trials. Yes, we can be tempted within our trials. But we are comforted in Scripture by knowing that God, even though He doesn't bring the temptations, He does limit the temptations. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, we're given this promise. No temptation has overtaken you that is common, that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The next verse in that chapter says to flee from idolatry. He will give you a way to flee from the temptation. And the next verse says, in this case, flee from idolatry. Flee from anything that you put in the place of the worship that is due only to God. By the grace of God and by the grace of God alone, we are to flee from temptation. Satan was very crafty in his temptation of Jesus. Crafty meaning it's not just he puts it out there and here, do this. He appeals to our humanity. Author Russell Moore uses the example of cows going to slaughter. Many years ago, the way they did it was to try to force them into the slaughter pens and try to herd them and try to force them. And it was difficult, and they would fight them and fight them, and then they finally learned to make it seem to the cows like they were being led to be fed. They made the paths winding. They slowly narrowed the path so the cow didn't even realize what was happening until at once they were willingly marching down the path and then bam, something hit him square in the forehead and dropped him dead. 
Sounds kind of brutal, doesn't it? But that's exactly what Satan does. He doesn't just put the bait directly in front of us and say, here, Christian, take it. No, he is very crafty and slowly nudges us and moves us toward the decision to fall in temptation to whatever it is he's trying to crush us with. He definitely attacks us through personal comfort. Maybe it would be through hunger like he, was, he attempted with Jesus. Maybe it would be through our human sexual desires. Maybe it would be through our need for comfort in temperature or whatever it may be or a, a new house or a nicer car. He has ways to try to distract us and lead us down the wrong road. He also tempts us through recognition, through acknowledgments. He tempts us by how people see us and what we perceive that people think of us or the power that comes with that through possibly money or possessions or through positions of authority, whether, authority, whether it's politicians or sadly even leadership within the church. He can use those situations to tempt us to misuse our possessions, to misuse our positions of power to further ourselves, to fulfill our personal needs. How do we overcome Satan's temptations? Well, first of all, we remember his limitations. He is not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not omni-anything. He's not all-everything. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-present. He's not all-anything. He is limited. He's not God. You say, but Kevin, I believe in Jesus. Isn't that enough? Personal trust in Jesus Christ does not end the spiritual battle. If anything, it turns up the heat. If we're not a threat to Satan's ultimate goal, he probably is going to tend to leave us alone unless we show some signs of joining the other team. I encourage you this morning to use the tools that you're given, beginning with prayer, communication with God, asking Him to empower you to be able to identify, to be able to overcome the schemes, the wiles of the devil. I encourage you to study the Bible. In order for you to be enriched, to be empowered, to be prepared to fight the spiritual battles, your Bible that you hold in your hand has to be more than a textbook that you take to church with you. The scriptures within that Bible have to be alive in your life. The characters that are accounted in that Bible have to be real to you. The struggles that they faced and the way God carried them through them have to be alive in your hearts. The Christ that is described from the beginning to the end of that Bible has to be the Christ that you embrace for your eternal life, for your salvation. It has to be more than a textbook that you take to Sunday school. It has to be real and alive to you. What was Jesus' first response? Scripture. He knew it. He understood it. He applied it. He used it. 
to overcome Satan. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible contains the words of the God of the universe who created us. There's power in that when we allow it to come alive in our hearts and in our lives. And the way we know the words of God is by reading and digesting the scriptures and every opportunity that we have. Remember, there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon told us that in Ecclesiastes. The Bible covers it all. No, as I've said many times, there was no scripture that told me that I was supposed to marry Amanda Ryan. But it gave me very specific qualifications for a godly wife. Gave me very specific instructions about not to be unequally yoked. Those instructions in all areas of our life can be found in the Bible. In the accounts of the lives of the patriarchs and the matriarchs. In the direction of the letters that were written to the New Testament churches. It's there for us to learn and to live by. I also encourage you to use the tool of embracing fellowship with fellow believers. Whether that's in a one-on-one accountability setting. We talked about church membership last week and the importance of that. That's the willingness to be able to share and walk through life together. Darren Kinney, I don't want to put you on the spot, but bless you for sharing this morning. I know many of you know that's not easy to stand up and share because many of you don't do it. But shame on me. I had the, the urge this morning to lead in an applause of praise to God for the testimony and for his willingness. And I want to do that now. Praise God for his bravery. That applause is just a taste of the fellowship that we have as believers, as a church. To hear the prayer requests that were lifted this morning, the agony of that family that's in Indianapolis, uprooted from their home in Canada, yet members of the body of Christ in this community are reaching out to them to help them. We are not alone. And that's not only in meeting our physical needs, that's in faith in also in facing the battles of the spiritual realm. You heard this morning in the offering song, facing the fire and the floods. Was the first image in your mind a fire and an actual physical flood? Because that's not all it's pertaining to. We know at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down as fiery tongues. There's a fire in the spiritual realm that is there to refine us, and it can also destroy us. There are floods in the spiritual realm of emotions, of temptations, of distractions, whatever they may be. And he's with us in the midst of the fire and the floods. He promises that. If you're in a marriage here this morning, work together. Don't work against each other. If you're a part of this church, open your spiritual eyes to the needs of those around you. Be willing to share your needs, your struggles, your praises. 
You say, but Kevin, I do all these things. I pray, I read, I serve at church. Are you doing them in faith? Are you doing them in believing that God is in the midst of all of it? Are you doing them in believing that those prayers are not just empty words, they are being heard by the Creator God? Are you reading your Bible believing that the Holy Spirit is bringing the truth in that Bible alive and real and powerful in your life? Are you doing it because you believe, are you serving in the church because you believe in what Scripture tells you that we are a body designed to work together, to grow together, to walk together? Is that why you're doing it? Or are you just checking it off of a to-do list as a work to be performed? Are you doing it in faith? I encourage you this morning, don't use the reality of the spiritual war as a crutch. You've heard the phrase, oh, it's not my fault, the devil made me do it. Temptations are real. Temptations are powerful. But every response to a temptation is an act of worship. You say, wait a minute, Kevin, you mean when I give in to temptation, when I fall in an extramarital affair, when I get angry at someone, that that's an act of worship? Yes, it's an act of worship of the enemy. You're agreeing with him. So when you make a decision toward a temptation, you have a choice to worship God or to worship the enemy in the midst of that temptation. That's why I say that every response to a temptation is indeed, in fact, an act of worship. What was Christ's final response to Satan in our text this morning? In verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written. Here we go back to Scripture again. You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus stood and demonstrated and spoke with His mouth exactly what we are to do as believers. Remember, temptation is not just about us. It's an all-out war on the kingdom of God. We as individuals are actually merely just a pawn for Satan. Satan uses us in his attempts to destroy God. He holds no value in us except for what he can do to destroy the kingdom of God. He will use us and throw us away. He will give us temporary satisfaction in our flesh. He will give us positions of power. just to use us so that he can then destroy us. But on the other hand, when we fight the battle for God, we are the prize for God. Remember, he sent his son for us. He is seeking to defeat Satan for us. John 3.16 Margaret came home this week and she's learning it as entering into Sparks at Awana. It's their opening verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son as the final complete tool in the battle against evil to give us 
eternal life. That is the ultimate end of the spiritual war. But he's not waiting at the finish line for us. He is walking with us step by step through the marathon of life. He empowers us to overcome the temptations that Satan sends our way. And we have a choice in the midst of those temptations to worship him for the God that he is and the power that he gives us. Or we can worship worship Satan and embrace the temporary satisfaction of those temptations. But that will ultimately give us an eternal damnation. An eternity separated from God. I encourage you this morning to follow the example of Christ. Yes, he was fully God. That's why he was able to overcome even the greatest of Satan's temptations. But we have the power of God available to us to face the temptations that Satan sends to us in the midst of his schemes. It is up to us by faith to trust and know that our battles are also won. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. We thank you for the power that you give us in the midst of our battles. We thank you, Lord, that as this spiritual war rages, we are not alone. That we, in fact, are the prize for you in the midst of this war, Lord. You're fighting this battle. You sent your Son to give us eternal life. Yes, Lord, and through that, you will be glorified but you will bring us into eternity with you to share in that glory, Father. What a blessing that is, God. Lord, the battle is raging daily. Satan is trying his best to destroy, to steal, and to kill. But thank you, Lord, that by faith we know that in the end you win the war and that you in love desire for us to be there with you for eternity. Lord, give us spiritual eyes to recognize the spiritual battle and to be empowered to fight it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.